0: Thank you, music team. Thank you, Steve, for leading us in repentance and assurance. We're continuing our series in Ecclesiastes. And if you're just joining us for the for the first time, if this is a new uh, this is a new book for many people, uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, is designed to make us ask the question: What is wh- where in life do I find meaning? Uh, what what is the most wh- what, where where is joy most to be found? And he's walked us f- f- few, uh, through a few things, uh, and the refrain so far has been uh, that all is vanity, right? And so just kind of keep in mind in front of you that that what that word vanity means is that that life is like a, a wisp of smoke. It looks solid until you try to grab a hold of it, and then it it escapes your grasp, and before you know it, it's gone. And while that sounds maybe a little bit dark, uh, it's actually designed to to free us up. Right By looking at at the futility of life, the preacher of Ecclesiastes hopes to help us see where life can actually be found. Uh, Today's passage is one that you might be familiar with. Uh, particularly if you like songs from the 70s, uh, this one might sound familiar to you. it's also uh, read often at funerals, but we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter three, and we're going to read verses one through fifteen. so let's give our attention to God's word. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his work. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would give us your grace of enlightenment, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, so that we would be renewed and transformed and changed. God, would you make us to treasure your love, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Time. Just said it a whole lot. Um, It's that That one thing that we're all bound by. And as hard as we try, it's the one thing that we cannot seem to control. Well, maybe not the one thing. Um, But certainly, as often as we try to schedule and arrange and chronicle our time, yet it is elusive to us. This morning we're going to see that we are bound in time so that we will learn to worship the God who isn't. We are bound in time so that we will learn to worship the God who isn't. And we're going to look at this in two ways. First, we're going to see that we ought to learn freedom from the limits of our time. And then second, we ought to learn all from the limits of our time. What do I mean when I talk about learning freedom Uh, So Ecclesiastes 3 begins with this beautiful poem, a poem that, again, you may have heard. You may have heard it in a song. You may have heard it read at a funeral. Um, But he says, for everything there is a season. And then he writes this poem to illustrate that fact. And you have seven. So seven is the number of completeness in the Bible, the number of perfection, some say. And what you have here in this poem are 14 pairs, 28 sevens. 14 pairs of opposites, right, looking at each extreme of life, Uh, and what those opposites are designed to do, you know, when you're talking about a time to be born and a time to die, or if we're talking about that that for everything there is a season, that means not only the time to be born and the time to die, but everything in between, Right, what the, what the teacher is doing is he's laying out these polar opposites so that we would understand that between those opposites, that too, uh, there is a season for all of that. All the seasons of life are captured here. And some of those are good seasons. Birth, laughing, dancing, loving. And some of those are bad seasons. Death, mourning weeping, hating. Some of them are ambiguous. Right? Sometimes you embrace and sometimes you don't. David and Tammy aren't here, but they need to hear that sometimes it's okay not to hug. Right? So you just pass that along to them. Right? Sometimes you embrace and sometimes you don't. There's a time to speak and there's a time to remain silent. There's a time... To look for things, to seek, to search, and then there's a time to give up. And wisdom is learning to know the difference. But notice, too, that all of these are relational. All of them have to do with other people. The seasons of life are all experienced with others. As one writer puts it, we dance At our weddings, and then we mourn the loss of those whom we danced with. Uh, We weep and we laugh, and sometimes we weep because the people that we laughed with are no longer there, or there's pain in that relationship. Right? All of these seasons of life are relational. Life is complex. Life is full of. Choices, and good times, and bad times, and everything in between. And here's the one thing that we have to grapple with. None of those seasons is set by us. The teacher says, for everything there's a season and a time, for every matter under heaven. He's telling us that these seasons are set, that all of these different Dances, all of these different cycles in life that we go through are not affected by us, but rather are affected upon us. We are mostly passive in this dance, that we are not in control. In fact, did you notice that one of the pairs cancels out the other? Death cancels out birth, peace cancels out war. Laughing can cancel out weeping, and weeping can cancel out laughing. But that reality that one cancels out the other leads us to verse 9, where the poet just kind of crashes the poem by saying, what does man gain from all his toil? We're back at that question. We asked that question last week. We asked that question the first week. It's one of the pressing questions of Ecclesiastes. What do we have to gain? If everything that we do in life, all the seasons that we go through end up canceling each other out and we all we turn around at the end of it and we look back and we see that there's there's nothing gained. What does man gain by all his toil? Now that maybe initially sounds, again, a little bit depressing, but let's let's look at it deeper. We need to learn the freedom of these words. We are not in control. We are not in control. You may have a planner and a to-do list, but just think, how often have your plans been interrupted? As uh, John John Steinbeck uh, writes at the beginning of his book, Of Mice and Men, it's actually a quote from a Scottish poem. He says, the best laid plans of mice and men go oft astray and leave us not but grief and pain for promised joy. That is a depressing way to look at life. I don't think that's where Ecclesiastes ends, but at least we have to first grapple with that reality. We're not in control. As much as we may plan, something always interrupts the plans, right? You're in your office, and you've got to get this project done, and you're so close, right? You're, you're, you're in the wheelhouse, and then somebody walks in the door, and they have a need that must be met right at that moment, and you have to stop what you're doing, right? Or you go out to work on your farm, and you discover that the battery in your tractor set fire in the middle of the night and burned your tractor up. That's a real story, true story. That has happened. Not to me. Right? That's a change in plans. You meet that special someone when you weren't even looking for them. Your baby arrives two weeks early. Or, more likely, one week late. Right? All of these seasons, all of these things, I mean, even, even with all of our ability... We cannot control those things that are most important to us. And so the first thing that the the teacher wants us to do is to adjust our expectations. So much relational strife comes from unmet expectations, particularly uh, unexpressed expectations. You want somebody to do something and they didn't do it. But more often than not, unrealistic expectations. Your expectations were not true. They were not realistic expectations, and we end up disappointed and frustrated. And so the teacher wants us to learn the freedom of saying, you're not in control. It's okay. Adjust your expectations. Somebody is going to walk in the office. The battery is going to catch on fire. The baby is going to come a week late. That's okay. We're not in control. And now, so we're not in control of our time. What do we do with that? Does that, does that leave us in despair? Are we, like, uh, are we like Steinbeck's poet? and Leave us not but grief and pain for promised joy. Right? Are we just meant to go through life pessimistic and sour, always waiting for the next shoe to drop? Is that what Ecclesiastes says? Notice that in, this first, in these first eight verses, uh, you don't even have to acknowledge that there is a God. That's right, why you see these so often read at funerals. Even the funerals for people who don't believe in God. Because what are we just it's, just... it's just life, right? The old French saying, c'est la vie. That's life. But that's not what Ecclesiastes wants us to do. We're not meant to throw in the towel. We are meant to learn freedom in our limits. We're also meant to learn awe in our limits. Look at what... The teacher says he goes on in verse nine, verse 10, rather, he says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time or or fitted or appropriate. That means of all of the, the times, God is the one who is orchestrating them and he has made them all appropriate at their time. So what this tells us is that these seasons of life that we go through, they're not just random, right? They're not mechanical. Time is not just on autopilot waiting until it crashes, that there is a God and he is in control of time. Now, how does that help us to, I'm going to step back into the first point for a minute. How does that help? How does that free us up? We talked about this in, in Sunday school. Right, if, you, if you view everything as, uh, like if you just took a, took a big circle and you drew it, and all of that circle was everything that God was responsible for. Right, we would call that the, the area of his sovereignty, where God rules and reigns as king, and that includes time and history. And then you viewed yourself as a small circle within that big circle. Right? And that small circle is everything that you are responsible for. Everything that you are to do. Now, here's what I like to do, and maybe you're like me. Instead of worrying about my small circle, I start worrying about other people's small circles, right? Instead of cleaning my own side of the street, I'd be like, hey, Gary's side of the street's not very clean. Maybe I can fix him. Oh, my wife, she needs some fixing too. Let's do that, right? And so we start, we start pressing outside of our circles of responsibility out into the areas that don't belong to us. And that's usually where we end up frustrated, right? And God says, no, 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 here's your limits. This is, this is the area where you belong. Live here. Find freedom here within your limits, right? You don't have to be the master of time. You don't have to control the seasons. And that's not meant to frustrate us. That's meant to set us free. It's meant to free us up so that we can do the things that God has called us to do and not worry about everything else. Then the, the teacher says in verse 11, he has put eternity into their hearts. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That word for eternity uh, can mean duration. Um, it can mean length. Basically, what it, what it points out is that humans alone have perspective on history. Right, We have a sense of the past and a sense of the present in a way that my dog does not. In a way that no other living creature has, we, have, we are able to gain some perspective of what's going on through time. Maybe not so much the future, but certainly the, the past and the present. We can look beyond ourselves and gain some perspective. And yet, our perspective is limited. It says he's put eternity into our hearts, yet so that we cannot find out, What God has done from the beginning to the end. So it's like, uh, you know, when you drive down the interstate and you see the the billboards by the side of the road uh, and they they all have that little scaffolding on them, I guess, you know, before digital billboards, but um, they all have that little scaffolding on them. And that's for the workers to get up there and, and put the picture up. That would probably be the last job in the world that I would want. But right. I want you to imagine that you're that worker. And your nose is about this far from the billboard. You have a sense that there is some greater picture, but you can't see the whole, right? Because if you step back, you're in trouble. And so you're you're stuck right here, and you can gain some perspective by looking around you. You can see some of the picture, but you can't see the whole thing. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. There's a picture, and we can see part of it, but we cannot see the whole thing. So... What do we do with that? What is, what is the conclusion that the teacher draws? Well, it's the same one that we heard last week. I perceive, verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. In other words, since we can't, since we're not God, since we're not in control of time, since we can't even get the whole sense of what he's doing, the best thing that we can do is enjoy the time that we have. Make the most of the time that we have. But there's even more than that. Because he goes on to answer why God has done this. Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear. Before him. Fear. Why has God. Ordered time in this way. And allowed us to sense it. And yet not fully. Grasp all of it. Because he wants us to embrace our limits. And worship him. He wants us to stand in awe. Before him. Awe. That's the, the The word fear there. Means reverential awe. If you ever had a, an experience, you know, think of the the word "awesome." We we've used it so much that it kind of is devoid of its meaning, right? The Grand Canyon can't be awesome in the same way that cheese pizza is awesome, right? But but when you see something that is truly awesome, right, um, where you just the the best way I can think of it is you're standing there and and you want to tell, you, you want to explain it, right? You want to share what you're seeing with everyone that you know, and yet at the same time, you don't have words to express what it is you're experiencing, right? Your, your, your brain fails to compute all that you're taking in. That's all. Outwardly, you're, you're in stunned silence, but inwardly, you're going 100 a, a miles a minute, right? All. And that's why God has designed things the way that He has. He wants us to stand in awe before Him, right? Awe comes when you experience something bigger than yourself. So, how do we learn awe? Well, first, we have to acknowledge that while we are time bound, God is not. That should lead us to all. While we are time-bound, God is not. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. What in the world does that mean? God seeks what has been driven away. It means that while you and I can't get back yesterday, and we can't get back last year, and we can't get back years before that, God does. God is, all, all of those moments are eternally present before God at once. So while it's lost to us, it's not lost to him. He sees it all. He stands over it all. And that should lead us to worship. Right? Everything that seems random to us makes sense to him. Everything that seems random to us makes sense to him. And what that should lead us to then is embracing your limits, right? Acknowledging up front, we are helpless and dependent creatures. All begins by acknowledging just how small you are. Right? That's, why, that's why when you go to the Grand Canyon and you look at as much of it as you. I mean, that, that, the, the remarkable thing is you can't even see. The whole thing but what you can see just leaves you breathless and speechless right because you realize just how incredibly small you are or when you stand in the bottom of zion canyon in this uh in the in the river and you look up and just at these tall towering cliffs above you you see just how small and insignificant you are right it gives us a sense of our own humility our own neediness our own dependence that should lead us to all We also learn all by acknowledging that as much as we want to be, we're not the authors of our stories. We want to write our own story. We want to say how it should go, how it should be. But there's joy and freedom in the fact that when we, we realize we don't have to. Someone else is writing the story for us, and we just get to play our part in uh, by faith magazine that's out on the resource table there's an article in there about uh, down syndrome children uh, and how uh, now with prenatal testing in some countries uh, down syndrome children have almost been eliminated because of abortion Uh, because of prenatal testing you can tell that maybe they've got the extra chromosome and so those children are aborted before they're even born Uh, but In that article, there's actually an interview with a friend of mine named Nate Sheridan, their youngest child, has Down syndrome. And, And here's what Nate writes. He says, God writes our stories, not us. He's making us the kind of people we need to be. That's what God's doing in time. When we take our hands off the steering wheel and realize that we're not the master of time, we learn dependence. And as we do that, God is writing our stories and making us into the kind of people He wants us to be. That's how we learn awe. And then the fourth way that we learn awe is simply to make time for worship. Right? Again, when you think about the All of the cycles of life and all of the the busyness and craziness, especially that our, our, our culture runs in. There's always so much to do, always so much to do. We need to slow down. We need to pull the reins back a little bit on our time. And we need to make time for worship. To sit before God's word, to sit quietly in prayer, and let God just astound us with who he is. Learning awe. Let me close with this thought. Uh, Christianity was distinct, is distinct, from a a number of other ancient religions in that it did not have a cyclical view of time, right? So if you were worshiping the, the gods of the Egyptians, right, everything hinged on the seasons. You know, this god was born, and so it was spring, and then he died, it was winter, and then he was resurrected, and it was spring, right? And so while there was an idea of the afterlife, History itself was just a series of endless cycles. And what Christianity brought to the table that was distinct from many religions is not that history was cyclical, but that it was going somewhere. That there was an end goal. That things would not always be the same. Right? The Bible teaches us that we are not trapped in a meaningless cycle of seasons. Birth, death, birth, death. Rather, that history has a purpose. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 1.15 when he comes on the scene. He says, the time is fulfilled. You could take that word and it could mean filled up. The time up to that point had been filled up. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus shows up, he is fulfilling the time. He is bringing the kingdom to bear. Here's how Paul puts it in his letter to the churches of Galatia. He says, when the fullness of time had come, you almost get the sense of of time as a as a pregnant woman. And then it's time for her to give birth. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, Jesus came to redeem us. But what about the future? The Bible tells us that one day, someday, Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will complete it all. And he promises us that there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. In fact, it says that God, in the new heavens and the new earth, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is what is to come. And so the question for you this morning is, where are you in that? Are you resting?